The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In between being a stay-at-home mom, volunteer, writer, photographer, and speaker, Meg Cowden has been a full-time gardener for over 25 years. Her first vegetable crop were tomatoes grown in five-gallon buckets in the city. Now she gardens in the western suburbs of Minneapolis. Her garden covers close to a quarter of an acre, growing fruits, vegetables, and annual flowering plants. Meg's background in natural resource management led to her pursuit of succession gardening, an interest in pushing the growing seasons on both extremes. Her goal is to grow as much shelf-stable food as possible for year-round consumption. Meg's website is seedtofork.com. Meg's book, is plant, grow, harvest, repeat. And Meg's Garden Gill is the modern garden gill. This is episode 102, Winning with Succession Gardening with Meg Cowden on the Garden Question Podcast. Are you in the middle of planning or planting your garden this year? I have a list for you of 57 annual and perennial plants bugs don't bother, curated by Jason Reeves. You heard Jason present his list in episode 101. If you'd like to get your own copy of the 57 annual and perennial plants bugs don't bother, then go to episode page 101 on the GardenQuestionPodcast.com and get the list. We'll also set you up with a good-to-know newsletter. Meg, what is succession gardening? Succession gardening, to me, really is looking at and understanding and applying different timescales to our gardens in the simplest form. So succession really means, to me in my book and how I define it, is one follows another. We've got a lot of timescales in our gardens and in our homes, from the trees that were on the property that maybe we acquired and got when we moved there, all the way down to new weed seeds that are blowing in year over year. Within that, in terms of food gardening, which is really the focus of my book, I try to help the readers really think about how they can take these different timescales and layer them together and have a really robust, delicious, fun, and very engaging growing season. How did you come up with succession planning concepts? In many ways, I am expressing things that are already used. I think about this all the time. Go to a farmer's market. You see a stall full of produce. That is a great example of succession planting in action. Those farmers had to plan all of those different crops. They take different timescales to produce. What you're seeing is literally the result of a succession plan that they implemented. I looked at nature really as my inspiration for the book. That's really where the book idea came about. Back in 2019, when I really decided I wanted to write a book, I didn't want to write a book about something that had already been written. There have been some books on succession planting. There has never been one written in this way because I took the lens of landscapes and applied those lessons to our home gardens. 
makes the book very unique. And I think it makes it really achievable and approachable for people that maybe don't have a huge interest in food gardening, but have an interest in native landscapes and just being outside in nature. We have so many landscapes around us that have innumerable lessons that we can implement into our vegetable garden and our flower gardens. What are the first questions we should ask ourselves when we decide to implement the succession planning? Yeah, I think the first and most important thing is, what do you love about gardening? What do you love to eat? What do you love to grow? To me, the next question would be that I would ask myself is, how can I extend those seasons? Here in Minnesota, I'm in zone 4A. I am trying to get the longest tomato season possible, and I'm trying to get the earliest and latest vegetables possible. Sometimes it's growing foods I wouldn't normally think of growing because they grow well in early spring. Example of that would be something like a mustard green or a broccoli rob. These are foods that I've just started growing in the past four or five years as I'm really trying to continually push the envelope of my spring garden. I try to time things as well. I don't have to plant all my food at once. So like with my tomato garden, I plant my indeterminate tomatoes a little earlier indoors than I plant my determinates because I don't want all my tomatoes coming into season really intensely. I mean, you know, down there, like the tomato season can get really intense. I want my canning season to be a little later so I can get past pickling season. Succession planting allows us to really create these nuances of our growing seasons that we might not think about if we just head out to the garden some Saturday in spring and fill all the beds with seeds and plants. Yeah, that's usually my planting style is just, (laughs) (laughs) you know, is just plow up the soil and plant because I I guess that's pretty old school that I learned from my parents. You plant your whole garden kind of within like a week or so? If I have a garden? Yeah. I'm so busy in the spring, I hate to say it, but it'll be late June before I get something planted. Then it gets too hot. I'm not a good food grower. You should do a fall and winter garden is what I think you should do. Okay. When should I start thinking about planting a fall garden or spring garden? Do I start in the house or in the greenhouse or at a window or what? Well, I don't recommend starting in a window. I think the question that even the couples with that, Craig, would be, do I want to grow things that need a head start indoors or do I want to plant things that are direct seeded? And I think whenever possible to make gardening, especially food gardening, really accessible to people, I try to encourage people to grow things that can be direct seeded. The things I don't direct seed, I don't direct seed any of my brassicas. So I give all of my cabbages and broccoli, my Brussels sprouts, my kale, I don't grow a lot of collards. I'm a northern girl, so I've grown them, and I thought they were delicious. I need to grow them more. What else is I'm missing another? Kohlrabi. I start all those indoors. I start my peppers and my eggplants and my tomatoes indoors. But I think other than those couple of food groups, you can really throw seeds in the ground. You guys could be throwing green onion seeds in the ground in September, carrots, beets, green beans. I feel like you guys could have green beans at Christmas time, fresh out of your garden down there, possibly. At least Thanksgiving, Yeah, it seems like. There's a lot of opportunity. I know a lot of people who follow me and follow my kind of planting practices have applied them to their growing zones. So I know someone down in Charleston, South Carolina, let me know recently that she uses my planting guides in my book and she just suggests them for her growing season. And she takes my early winter guide and she pushes it back into the fall for her overwintering vegetables. There's people out in Seattle that I talked to last weekend who have been overwintering vegetables for the first time successful and they've got broccoli heading up right now in February out on Bainbridge Island. I think what's beautiful about this is, you know, I grow in zone four. It's really cold, but I'm able to really see the impact I'm having on gardens across all zones. People down in San Diego follow what I say in my book, as well as people up in Alaska. This whole idea of succession planting, we can all apply it to our gardens. And so, yeah, for you, it might mean 
thinking about root vegetables and maybe throwing some kale. I think you could throw kale seeds on the ground Mm. in August, September. After that busy season in May, buy the tomatoes from someone else on the corn. and Support my local farmer's market. You got it. That's probably my best bet. (laughs) (laughs) What about perennial planting? Is that part of your garden? Yeah, for sure. Perennials are part of our food garden. Food garden, I should mention, I don't know, an eighth to a quarter of an acre fenced in. We've got a deer fence. It's also raccoon proofed with a couple of electrical wires on the outside. It's rabbit proofed with chicken wire. The inside perimeter has espaliered fruit trees as well. And in my book, I talk about this. So it's not only vegetables that we've been talking about already that we can think about succession planting. Perennial fruits and vegetables have their own seasons. Not only do they have their own seasons within spring through fall, they have their own seasons across years. What do I mean by that? Strawberries are really fast to produce, right? You throw some strawberry plants in the ground, we might let some of ours flower the first year, but for sure within the second year, you've got fruit. Pear trees might take 10 years here for us to get fruit. That is a whole other kind of succession. The more diversity we plant within our fruit, the more we'll have that sort of layered dribble of food that will come into season. You have the early succession things that kind of tide us over until our fruit trees mature and come into production. We've got something like, I'm guessing, 16 fruit trees in our garden of various kinds. They're largely apples. It's probably two-thirds apples. Not all the apples have started producing yet because we've lost some to cold weather over the years. We've got a couple of plum trees. Only one of them has started producing. Then we've got two apricots and two pears, and they have not produced at all. So we're going into year seven or eight of growing in this space. Some of the trees are seven years old now. Some of them are only maybe three. We have not gotten fruit from all the trees yet. And so that's a nice way of adding more food, but also knowing that it's not going to be that glut necessarily in one short amount of time like tomatoes would be, or if you had a big amount of sweet corn, things like that. How do you schedule all of this? Because to me, it seems like just a tremendous amount of data, first of all, that you've got to acquire from starting the seed to the germination time to harvesting and canning. And you were talking about pickling season and all the way down to to preserving. You have a schedule. How do you keep up with all that? I'm tired just listening to you describe my life. (laughs) (laughs) This was a very slow progression of our gardening career. To go all the way back, my husband and I started gardening before we were even engaged back in our college days and, you know, the late 90s. Had our first real garden summer of 2001, tilled up the backyard of our rental property. No questions asked. We were just going to ask forgiveness. It was a 20 by 20. We double dug it, something we wouldn't do anymore. I digress a little bit, but all of that to say that this wasn't like two years ago, I didn't say, I'm going to write a gardening book and I'm going to start doing all of these things. We had this interest the whole time we've been together as a couple. And it's not just me. We work as a team. And I think in that regard, I'm pretty lucky. Like all those perennials I just described, that's his domain. I get to enjoy it. He prunes them. He sprays them against diseases with some organic biological sprays. He largely tells us when things are ready to harvest. I take care of all the annuals and the flowers, and I do all of the direct seeding. In 2017, when we had this first garden here, I started doing online spreadsheets. The way I keep track of everything is each cell is a cell either in a 72 plug tray or I now do soil blocks. Just map it out, have all my cells. So I have a legend and I keep these year over year and I'll copy them at the end of the gardening season rename them as the next year as my starting point, and then I'll adjust them when I change varieties out. 
talk about this in my book. So these legends got a lot of data in them. They've got the varieties I grew and they've got the sowing date. So I know when I started and how much I started of something. I don't keep track of generally when I transplant them or pot them up. That's kind of knowledge that I've just been gaining over the years. If I can start things where I don't have to pot them up indoors, that's ideal, right? So like my brassicas or head lettuce, things like that. But those slower establishing things like tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers get potted up as well as celery and some other flowers that take a little longer. And then in terms of like how I know how much to grow, we're still, I feel like, exploring that. This is a really big scale we're growing on. We've never grown on a scale this large. So some of the questions we're currently asking ourselves is, yes, how many tomato plants do I need to can what I need for the year? My kids love eating tomato-based foods. I like making ketchup, and that is very, very tomato-intensive. It boils down quite a bit. That's a lot of tomatoes. And I started making Bloody Mary mix last year to give away as gifts. We're still figuring that out. And the thing about gardening is, and you probably would agree with this, having experience with plants is that even though I know maybe one year I have success at a certain number of plants, that does not guarantee that the next year is going to have that same result. In this way, I really feel like as much as I'm an expert, I am always a novice. Like every growing season, I feel very humbled because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what weather. I don't know how the weather is going to impact the varieties I'm choosing. I always grow some new varieties. And so that freshness and that newness and that perennial student aspect of gardening to me really is a joy. Record keeping, I think, is probably really helpful. (laughs) And we do do that to a degree. But we are gardening on such a big scale that I think we overshoot things a little bit. Like we end up giving a lot of stuff away and sharing food with neighbors and friends and food shelves and things like that. Did that answer your question? It did, but I'm still curious. Are you doing any diagramming for your beds? Okay, I'm going to grow this in this bed and then switch it out. And I guess that's maybe part of the scheduling, but on the succession planning, it's like, this has got to be done here by this date. And then I've got to replant by this date. It's all done on the spreadsheet. Yeah, I'm a real visual thinker. If I go out to the garden right now, I can usually kind of reconstruct where things were the the year before, for better or worse, and maybe for worse. And I also have a lot of photos. So if I have to lean back on the year before, I lean on photos. I feel like one thing you're asking about a little bit is crop rotation too. And that is the plants I crop rotate strategically are my tomatoes and my potatoes. And that's about it. In my book, I've got these crop rotation. Like I start with this and I switch to that. And this would be the third succession you can get out of a bed. But I have a couple of things that are tried and true. We're on a slope, and so our farthest northern beds before we start hitting the perennials is where I always start my earliest garden. Earliest garden clears out. That's my brassicas and my kohlrabi and my bok choy and my Chinese cabbage and my early cabbages and broccolis, etc. Clears out at the latest by like July 15th. What goes in there is late season carrots. So our our root cellar carrots, our fall carrots and things like later beets and later edamame. I try to push the edamame season. This is another aspect of succession planting is you can use it to offset pests. I play with the edges of my season. We have Japanese beetles up here and they really love some legumes more than others. And they happen to really love edamame. I've stopped growing them early in May and I don't sow them until later in July. At that point, Japanese beetles are usually hanging out in our asparagus. I don't even care if they hang out in my asparagus. I mean, what foliar damage? Those plants are out of control. They can eat some of that and I'm fine. This is the other thing about succession planting is you can try and like outwit the pests. 
I can get beautiful brassicas really early, like May and early June before the cabbage whites show up. I literally have unblemished cabbages that are just absolutely beautiful and much easier. I digressed a little bit, but yeah, I am thinking about, and I've had years of experience with this. So I know my garlic is going to open up in July and I know my onions are going to open up in August. And those spots are where I put a lot of my fall plantings my daikon and my turnips and things like that. You get a sense. I call these gaps in my book. Depending on how you plant, you're going to end up creating gaps in your garden. And those are strategic and timely. And you have to think about what could follow. Depending on where you are, how close you are to your frost, you're going to have lots of options to choose from, from like warm season crops still that are quick, like bush beans and summer squash, to like only for us, only frost hardy things like cilantro and arugula and and radishes, all of those things can handle down to like 26 degrees, no problem. So In the winter, are you planting any kind of winter cover crop? Our cover crop in winter is usually snow. (laughs) We just got a little over 15 inches in the last couple of days. Beds had started to show themselves again, about a foot of most of the beds, now that they're raised beds. And yeah, can't see any of the beds anymore. I put compost down every fall on top of our soil, and I kind of use that as a mulch as well as nutrition. I let the microbes grab the nutrition they need and bring it back down and integrate it. It's worked really well for us. We've been doing that for about six years now, and I've been really happy with the results, and it looks really tidy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mentioned old school plowing up the garden. That's why my parents did it, but you're using no-till methods. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When we built our gardens back in the fall of 2016, we did till. We tilled once. We had really heavy clay. We tilled in some silt and golf sand and compost to try and bring our soil texture closer to a loam. We know enough about soil science to do this. And after we did that, that was the only time we tilled. We tilled a good 12, 14 inches and tried to bring up some of that clay and mix in the silt. And I mean, I grew like 14 inch carrots that next year. Even though this is a little unconventional, it does work. We just committed to not tilling. Now, why don't we till? I think the biggest and most important reason is obviously the soil life. You want to maintain that soil structure. When we break it up, we end up kind of interrupting the microbiome that is developing underground. And this is something that thankfully is getting so much more attention. Things we don't see, we don't understand. And I think we just kind of forget to think about them. We're so focused on what we see, how our plants are growing, and they are a direct reflection of the health of our soil. The other thing is we're kind of lazy, but more importantly, if I don't have to till, I can plant as soon as my soil is warm enough. I think in that regard, people can get an earlier start on their seasons if they're not tilling and they're just waiting for the soils to be the right temperature. It's kind of a multifactorial thing. And of course, now that we have raised beds, you just don't till raised beds. Raised beds are one of the ways you don't have to worry about tilling. And, you know, you do it for a variety of reasons. We transitioned from in-ground beds to raised beds in uh, 2021, so about two years ago. Partly aesthetics. Partly I have a lot of chronic pain. So really to kind of ease my back a little bit, bring it off the ground. We have some creeping weeds. Our paths are grass and clover and then creeping Charlie. I don't know if you guys have that in the South, but it's kind of a nasty, really not deeply rooted, but does spread rhizomatously. It gives us a little bit of a barrier. Our weeding has gotten even less. And with no-till, it wasn't very much at all. But now that we've built the raised beds, it's even less. We also added irrigation and we wanted to wait to do that until we decided if we wanted to raise beds. Now for sure we're no-till. I'll use the pitchfork for my carrots, but that's about it. Everything else, you just dig a hole, pull some soil aside, drop some seeds in there, put a transplant in, you're done. It's as simple as just taking a trowel and just sticking it in the ground and pulling it back and planting. 
That's it. There's no prep. Got my slow-release organic fertilizer right there at the ready every time. I really believe in feeding our food a lot of nutrition and a lot of nutrition that is released over time. In addition to compost, we use slow-release organic fertilizer. I think the other biggest key to a good garden is don't compromise on sun at all. We are in very, very full sun, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. You know, that kind of bothers me, especially on TV programs or magazines or even on the internet where people are planting vegetable crops in the shade. I know there's a few crops that'll do better in the shade than others, but it's just always kind of like, why are we misdirecting people by making them think they can grow really nice vegetables without sun? Yeah. And I think even it's not just how many trees are around you. I think when you get down to the bed level, the square foot level, it's are you giving your plants enough space? You can be in full sun. In my garden, and I am in full sun. But if I am trying to plant too much in one place, there's going to be an overstory and there's going to be an understory. And you have to choose the right plants when you kind of interplant together to match them up so they'll both succeed. Otherwise, you're going to have either nothing's going to be happy or maybe the crop that you really wanted to get underneath is going to just be really spindly or not even produce. Maybe you wouldn't get a radish root or things just aren't going to thrive. I have trouble with oak roots and just various tree roots. They'll find those very nice beds and they'll just invite them. Do you have that challenge? We have that challenge in our compost. We open compost behind our barn. Our property is full of black walnut trees. We cut two trees down that were kind of in the vicinity of our garden before we planted. One was a black spruce that had needle cast and the other was a black walnut that was quite literally within a foot of the barn. We cut both of those down to put the deer fence up and to get the garden. So we have no mature trees except for the fruit trees in the garden. I don't anticipate the fruot trees are going to ever impede. We've got three foot, four foot paths next to them before we have any raised beds. So no, we did this strategically. We looked at lots of property out this way and we chose property that had a wide, large lawn that was mostly devoid of trees. That was a criteria, honestly, for me. <laughs> It was like, we didn't really care what the house looked like. We wanted, we didn't want to have to take a lot of trees down to garden. We want good garden space. (laughs) Well, yeah, because we were leaving the city and we knew that a good school district and garden, those were our top two criteria. And so we only looked in the one school district we wanted to be in. And then it was the yard was more important than the house. Always compromises. Yeah, decide. Do you want a nice kitchen or do you want a nice garden? I don't know. I'd rather have the nice garden. (laughs) (laughs) How about interplanting in succession gardening? Is that a possibility? Yeah, it's a huge possibility. I think it's even more important when you have less space. I had mentioned we are sort of like the obnoxious garden space. We have a lot of space. And so I do interplant. I might interplant more if I was in the city. And when we were in the city for 13 years, we interplanted quite a bit. You learn like not everything can be interplanted. In my book, I say, you know, interplant, don't overplant. There's some things that are interplanted better, and those would be really easy crops. So radishes do great interplanted. Leafy greens do great interplanted. Things that are lower growing, and those you can really mix in with just about anything, from cabbages to peas to tomatoes especially that early season when all of us are developing things like our peppers and our tomatoes and our eggplants. We have lots of square footage on the ground level where the sun is still reaching to put crops like that. Some people call it intercropping. I call it interplanting. I put green beans in between some of my early brassicas somewhere around middle end of May when they're slowly heading for me here, those earliest plantings that I grew undercover. I'll get that first hot season crop going before I harvest them to get that extra 10 days on those beans. And I can only do that, Craig, because I plant those two rows of brassicas far enough apart that there is actual sunlight. I start with radishes, and when the radishes mature, there's usually enough room 
for me to drop those beans in. And then I dropped them kind of alternate planting in between. I did it with my sweet corn. I just cut my sweet corn at the ground this summer, my first succession. And in between those rows, I dropped my fall head lettuce in. That's not so much interplanting, but what I'm saying about that is you you can think about how you plant your main crop. You kind of think about you're going to have at least two layers of crops. That's kind of how I think about interplanting. Flowers is another really big one to interplant. I spend a whole chapter talking about annual flowers in the food garden in my book. I think it's very important. It increases diversity. It brings in beneficial and predatory insects into our gardens. It makes it beautiful. I didn't used to put flowers in my garden. I always used to put them adjacent to my garden in the city because we didn't have enough room. I put my flowers, we called it the boulevard, which is the strip. I don't know if you guys call it the hell strip down there, but it's the strip between the sidewalk and the street. We called it a boulevard up north, or at least in Minneapolis. And then my raised beds were in our front yard. Really didn't have flowers in them. They were just 100% vegetables. All that to say is that our aesthetics and our styles change over time, but I probably have about 10 to 20% of our garden space now is flowers. And that maybe is underestimating it a little bit. Some flowers I'll interplant. Ones that I like the greens are low growing. Other ones that grow taller end up being their own space. And those as a design element become flowers that get repeated across the garden to kind of harmonize the space and, and connect it all together. Doing succession planting with your flowers? In so much as I'm planting a lot of different flowers and they all have slightly different seasons, yes. In a lot of ways, I plant them all at the same time, but some are more cooler season flowers. So they do really well in the early season and then kind of go dormant a little bit in summer and you kind of cut them back like my calendula and my snapdragons. And then they'll grow again in September and October and even our little frost hardy. So I'll have flowers after the first frost. And then other flowers like my nasturtium and my zinnia are kind of my main season and late season flowers. Sunflowers are later season. Typically don't plant more than one succession. I start my flowers about four weeks before my last frost. Transplant them all out sometime in May. It's a lot. I probably grow like 300 flower plugs or something that I throw into our garden. You're always growing your own crops. Should we do that as succession gardeners, or can we depend on what we can find at the garden center? That's a really good question. Um, I am hoping that garden centers are catching on to this. I think in warmer climates, they're better. I see people down in Georgia who can find brassica seedlings in the fall. I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find brassica seedlings in July in Minnesota or celery seedlings in July, and that's the time that you should be transplanting those out into the garden. So in some ways, we have to take the garden into our own hands and really consider seed starting as succession planters. But I think that that probably varies a bit depending on what grow zone you're in. Because I do think that warmer zones think more about a winter garden than colder zones think about a fall garden. Does that make sense? Yeah. You've mentioned your book a couple of times, Plant, Grow, Harvest, Repeat. What is the big takeaway from your book? I hope the big takeaway is if someone reads that book is they see opportunity. Just really this idea that seasons are more elastic than we maybe think they are. If I don't get my tomatoes planted on May 15th, it's okay. I can plant them on June 1st. That might even be better. Like what if having tomatoes later in the season works well? Knowing that we can start a garden really kind of any time, we just have to know what seeds to plant and to really be curious about adding as much food as interests us, as our space allows, and as we'd we'd like to have to really bring diversity to our tables. And I think that that diversity is really kind of a reflection of kind of our, our whole being and society, really, if you want to zoom it way out. 
Diversity is where we all thrive. Having a healthy garden and seeing how healthy it is with food and flowers mixed together and perennials and annuals, it's really just a signal that we are meant to live in community and to be community and to kind of embody community. You started a garden guild. Would you explain to us what that's about? I decided to start a subscription-based model of kind of garden advice about a year ago, kind of aligned with my book coming out. It was a real conscious decision. I'm just going to be completely frank. Spent about the last six years on social media, really educating tens of thousands of people about succession planting and gardening. As the model has changed and really demanded a different way of showing up, wanting more videos, wanting people to look ridiculous and play loud music and really trying to keep people on their phones. That's what it's devised to do, is it's devised to keep our attention. That didn't really resonate with me, and I was trying to find a way to value my time, value my insights, and I was getting bombarded by a lot of the same questions over and over again, and decided to hold a line. I really don't answer questions on social media very much anymore. I have a a monthly newsletter, get it out as often as I can to subscribers. That's totally free. I only send about one email a month. It's usually a little bit of a garden essay, sometimes blog posts. But then the Garden Guild is a, a paid subscription and it's $6 a month or $72 a year. And people get access to me. I answer questions anytime. I do daily video stories on a private Instagram account. I do usually about two blog posts a week. Some weeks it's a recipe. Some weeks it's answering their questions. I do monthly Q&As. I have screensavers that I send out of my garden photography once a month. And then it's also some kind of a how-to guide. Like this month in February, I did an onion grow guide. Lots of people wanted to know how to grow onions from seed. It's a really wonderful way. I've got about almost 450 subscribers right now, and it's been a really positive experience. It's really a fun way to connect. I find it really fulfilling. It's frankly kind of hard to switch from like a free model to a paid model. I feel very strange taking people's money still. I don't believe in advertising to people. My website doesn't have any advertisements. I don't do any tool advertising on Instagram. I mean, it's just my book and my guild, and I really try to hold true to that business model. I don't want people to think they have to buy stuff to be good gardeners, and I'm not there to to hawk someone else's product. Seeds. Seeds would be the thing I would tell people to buy, right? What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building or growing a garden? I'm not sure people need to do things differently, necessarily. But the one thing that we do and we've done for a long time that I think I would love to see more people do is having what I call auxiliary gardens. Make sure you've got space on your property for native insects, pollinators, predatory insects, beneficial insects, butterflies, moths, all of those, you know, foundational species that feed the rest of the food web. We have converted a lot of our property to native planted prairies and woodland seed mixes. We have so much diversity of insect life just naturally helps build a more resilient garden overall. We're not big turf people, kind of terrible about it. And we've overseeded Dutch white clover all over our property as well. Any place you can add flowers and flower successions to your property, I think that might be the single most important thing we could do as a society right now to really help the insect populations. Even if you're not going to be a food gardener, I really would encourage people to consider throwing some cardboard down and some compost on top and throwing some native seeds down and start a native pollinator garden. What garden myth would you like to smash? My favorite garden myth to smash is that asparagus grown from seed is superior to planting crowns because crowns are our one-year-old plant usually. We harvested asparagus off of our one-year crown equivalent. So 18 months from seeding, we were eating asparagus out of our asparagus patch. 
even if it says growing from seed, you're not supposed to harvest for a couple of years. It's just not true. It's all about timing your crops. So the earlier you start those asparagus seeds inside, then you pot them up and you really grade out your roots so that you have the biggest and strongest roots because that's what that plant is about, right? It's a perennial. You want hardy roots. Those roots are going to send the spears up in spring. You plant them really deep. You give them lots of compost that first year, full sun, no competition. Don't interplant you can harvest asparagus that following spring. I mean, we didn't harvest a lot. We harvested maybe a couple of pounds, but we were getting like big spears. It's like, oh, come on, we can take a couple here and there. I really believe that this is some strange horticultural myth that people have been taught for decades that you need to plant asparagus from crowns, and it's just not true. It's a very rewarding thing to know that you started your asparagus from seeds. You've got male and female asparagus plants. If you don't have a male-dominated hybrid variety, you're going to have the females. And you know you have the females is when they have the little red berries. And you think that's really cool, but it's actually not cool because if those berries drop to the ground and they germinate, you're not going to know in a couple of years which one of those was the plant that you planted 12 inches down and which one was the seed that germinated at the soil a couple years ago. It's all about the vigor of those roots. And so you really want to make sure that you don't have competition over time because it's going to diminish the overall harvest of those main parent plants. We have male dominant species. We've actually had a few females. We've graded them out. We still get pollen, which is great. And the bumblebees love it. No ladies dropping their seeds. (laughs) What's your earliest garden memory? My dad was the vegetable gardener and my mom grew zinnias. I'd like to say I remember the garden back in the 70s when we were living on an army base in Massachusetts. I don't remember spending a lot of time there. I feel like the garden was my dad's part of his PTSD therapy that he never really got from being a Vietnam War veteran. He went to the garden and it was his quiet time. Never really brought us in. And I think it was because he needed healing time and space. And that was kind of one way he knew to try and take care of himself. I remember the food garden growing up in the 80s in Connecticut. We would have lots of green beans and he loved crookneck squash. Those are kind of the two main things I remember him growing. I'm sure he grew tomatoes too. It was a small little plot. It was tilled up. He didn't have a tiller. It was bare ground. It was fenced in a little bit, and it was a very modest little spot. He found the best sun in the backyard he could. What led you to pursue gardening as a profession? The internet kind of did. I know that's kind of a funny answer. I didn't really know this was where I was going or even doing. It really started when I realized that people shared their gardens publicly in 2017 when I started Seed to Fork sort of snowballed from there. Within a couple of years, I had 10,000 followers. And then I was on Growing a Greener World and Joe Lample's podcast. Not long after that, I'd always want to write a book and it wasn't necessarily a gardening book, but I ended up writing a gardening book. It's just been a natural progression over time. Now I do a lot of speaking events, I've got the book, of course, and the guild. So it was this slow expansion, kind of like how our garden has matured over the years. It's the perfect metaphor. I had no idea that this was going to be a career. Surely you've got a funny garden story you can share with us. I've had a lot of different gardens over the years. I think pests are probably some of the funniest things that have happened to us. You think, you know, two times now, we've had some kind of a deer fence. Thought we were good. Once was out in the country, put up a 3D deer fence, planted basically the three sisters. We tilled up a quarter acre, we planted dry beans, we planted lots of pumpkins, and we planted a whole bunch of sweet corn. Kind of like an absentee garden. I didn't really do much. I baited the deer fence with peanut butter. We turned it on, called it good. Checked on it now and again. One weekend, I went out to harvest the corn with the kids. It was about an hour outside of the city. And I show up and I go look. And there is a massive pile of corn. It wasn't the deer I should have been worried about. You know who it was, maybe. It was the raccoons. 
They got right under that fence. They harvested my corn and sat there and ate it. I can imagine them like having a little powwow in my field of corn. I was so mad. Happened in this garden too. We had the deer fence. We rabbit proofed it with chicken wire. Lo and behold, one morning I go out there and like the corn is slightly leaned over and we're like raccoons and we're totally had to drop our lives, run to tractor supply and get all of the supplies for the electric fence, wired that thing up that next day to prevent them from climbing. And we haven't had an issue since. We've had woodchucks too more recently, and that story is probably not suitable to tell on air. We did eventually trap it and relocate it. It was not easy. Oh, man. Your career, who's been your biggest influencer? We started learning how to garden from a couple of gardening books, you know, pre-internet days. We were out in Oregon when we learned how to garden. Steve Solomon's book, Growing Vegetables West of the Cascades, was our first gardening book. He is the founder of Territorial Seeds, if you're familiar with them. He was a pretty big influence on how we thought about growing and really thought about how to scale things and how much to grow of what. He's the reason we have 40 asparagus plants for a family of four, which is too many, by the way, because only two of us like to eat them. Elliot Coleman is another one that we really latched onto a lot of his books. The Four Season Harvest or Winter Harvest Handbook and The New Organic Grower. He kind of rides the cusp of a farmer and gardener with a lot of his writing. Other than that, just really been trying to follow what our passions are and just really try to share our adventures in just a really authentic way. And it resonates with people. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, anytime I kill something, I feel like that's a garden success. How early can I plant things? I've had years where I've lost some tomato plants to late frosts, even though they were covered and double covered. Sometimes when it gets down below 29, 28, there's bound to be a few that can't make it. I really feel like when I lose plants, those are really valuable lessons. We learn more from those mistakes than we do from our successes. And that's true across all aspects of our life, right? Mm -hmm. When you run into that wall, that's when you have to reflect. Anytime I can kill something, I feel like I've learned a lot. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've talked about your garden a lot already, but I'd like for you to complete the statement, in my garden, I have. In my garden, I have peace. Garden to me is a real spiritual act. I think this is what I love about it is it's practical, it's edible. But when you bring the flowers into it, as I had mentioned, it becomes beautiful. We've created patios within our garden, so we actually have gathering spaces within it, so you can be fully surrounded by the garden. My whole life melts away every morning in the summer when I'm able to go out to the garden and just be in it, appreciate all of the life that it gives. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're going to apply this year? I'm always trying new things. Last year, we tried some new trellising methods for our determinate tomatoes. took my cattle panels and I put them horizontally so they were parallel to the ground. Instead of them being vertical, my tomato plants grew up and through them. And that was really successful. I've not seen anyone else do it that way. That was something I only shared with my guild. Really successful model. I did it for our tomatillos as well. And I'm going to be doing that in the future. Um, for determinate plants. I think it would work great possibly for like peppers too. Uh, Our peppers don't get as tall as they do down there. All right. What are your future plans for your garden? Well, we've built out all the hardscaping at this point. We're really hoping to get to a point of kind of stasis. The big goals that we're working with are really fine-tuning all of our, what I call kind of our dry crops. How much square footage do I need for things like cornmeal and dry beans? 
how much space do I need for those determinate tomatoes for canning and fine-tuning that so that we can further explore the more fluid beds of the garden that have more opportunity to be succession planted. And then I also want to continue to explore how much I can push adding flowers to the garden while not diminishing from those harvests. The primary goal is the food. Pretty close secondarily to me is the flowers. And so really trying to ride that edge of having as much color in the garden as I can while still achieving our harvest goals. What plant are you in love with this week? I'll tell you what is germinating under my grow lights. It's a new to me plant this year is I've got artichokes that are just starting to germinate. I love growing things that I've never grown before. And I like to kind of grow them blind. What I mean by that is I kind of don't know what to expect. I don't know what the cotyledons are going to look like. Kind of know what the true leaves are going to look like, right? It's in the thistle family. I am really excited about this. It's going to get me through these next many, many weeks of snowstorms and cold air to kind of watch and just be in awe of how that plant is going to unfold under my grow lights. Could you describe your garden? Yeah, so we are out in the western twin cities of Minneapolis. We live on a little over two and a half acres, and the garden is an eighth and a quarter of an acre. It's on a kind of a slight hill. That is probably the biggest thing that people say when they come to the garden. I didn't know you gardened on a hill. And I try, I try to show this, but it's really hard to see. It's steeper slope on one side, gentler on the other. The barn is down at the bottom of the hill and the point of arrival. I laid the garden out really unusually. It's got a diagonal path in it. A lot of them are square on one side, but the middle of the path, they are diagonal. So they're a pretty sharp angle all the way down the main path. I did that because I wanted to have the house, the garage, talk to the garden. It's kind of our side yard. It's not in our backyard. Our backyard is full of black walnuts and we've got a creek and woods back there, but we weren't going to mess with that land. This was the best land on the property to put the garden together. The perimeter on the east and northern sides are espalier fruit trees, starting from the barn and working their way up our annual beds. And so we sort of did the perennials on the north and the east side, and then the annual beds came up from the barn. What ended up happening, which made the garden even more unique, is we had these weird triangular spaces left over. So I turned those into triangle beds. When we rebuilt the garden back in 2021, we took all of these beds and converted them all into raised beds, everything on drip irrigation. And then we have a mixture of cedar raised beds and weathered steel for the triangle beds and then also for the edging in our orchard. It's got this really nice element of modern a little bit and real clean lines. Come August, you can really only see the plants and it just feels very lush and beautiful. Is the house at the top of the slope or is it at the bottom of the barn? No, it's up higher. It's kind of in parallel with the top of the hill. We can see it from one room in the house, which is our bedroom. So it's not a bad thing. Well, I was imagining that you would be out on your deck and you would just overlook this gorgeous garden. No, and I think my husband and I often say it probably is better for like our mental health that we can't see it outside our kitchen window because all day long we'd be like, oh, God, I forgot to do this. I need to do that. Oh, I consider it our second home kind of because you have to leave the house and you go over to it. And so, yeah, it's like a big home. It's our home. It's our second home. It's definitely where a lot of important conversations take place. Friends over. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to wrap up with? Just hope that this podcast kind of encourages your listeners to really explore succession planting if they haven't already and know that any place they start is a great place. And I like to tell people in my talks that if you plant a tomato garden and you plant more than one type of tomato, or if you plant any garden with more than one type of food, you are succession gardening. It really is this idea of 
spreading our harvests out. And we do it naturally as gardeners because we gravitate to growing different things. But there is just an exponential possibility of doing more. And I think with climate change and our seasons shifting, exploring succession planting is a really great tool for us to feel more resilient and to kind of let our vegetables and fruits guide us into knowing what foods are going to continue to be good in our growing zone in the coming years and decades. So I really encourage people to explore it. Meg, tell us how people may connect with you. Primary way that people would want to connect with me would be on Instagram, which is at seed to fork. I also have a website of the same name. If they like what they see there, probably the best thing to do would be to support my work by picking up a copy of my book, Plant, Grow, Harvest, Repeat, which is available everywhere books are sold. And I highly encourage people to order it from an independent bookseller if they have one nearby. I'd like to remind you about getting the list of 57 annual and perennial plants Bugs Don't Bother, curated by Jason Reeves. You heard Jason present his list in episode 101. If you'd like to get your own copy of the 57 annual and perennial plants Bugs Don't Bother, then go to episode page 101 on the GardenQuestionPodcast.com and get the list. We'll also set you up with a good-to-know newsletter. This has been Episode 102, Winning with Succession Gardening with Meg Cowden on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Meg. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.